0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council.
1: Welcome to the Friday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships, back for you and sitting in for Tony Perkins today on this Friday before Thanksgiving. Happy to be with you. Well, in an age where more and more people are rejecting their creator, they are likewise rejecting the creation and believing they can be born in the wrong body. In just a minute, I will discuss with Madeline Kearns of the National Review Institute her comprehensive new piece, The Tragedy of the Trans Child, and the lack of science behind the transitions of those increasingly caught in the political crosshairs. In my second segment, the Democratic Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf vetoed a bill yesterday which would have outlawed abortions of unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome. I'll talk with Republican State Representative Kate Klunk, the sponsor of the bill that passed on Wednesday. At the bottom of the hour, Colorado parents are furious that a high school teacher assigned sexually explicit material in a music literature class without parental consent. I'll talk with Jeremy Dice, attorney with First Liberty, representing a 16-year-old student and her father. And at 42 past the hour, just as the Heritage Foundation's Economic Freedom Index is meant to help us understand the role that economic freedom plays in countries worldwide, So, too, Beckett Law's new Religious Freedom Index hopes to provide us with an understanding of public opinion on different issues of religious freedom and the role of religion in the public square. Despite popular narratives to the contrary, the report actually gives us some good news. I'll talk with Caleb Lyman, Director of Research at Beckett Law. As a reminder, go to TonyPerkins.com, the site for our podcast, where you will find a number of resources including the article we previously referenced on Madeline Kearns and, as it ran in the National Review, her examination of the lack of science behind the trans debate. Follow Twitter, Tony on Twitter, at T. Perkins, me, if you'd care to, at Sarah P. Perry. And be sure to share this program with your friends on your own platforms. Well, no doubt you are familiar with the story of the seven-year-old Texas boy named James Younger. His mother, Ann Jorgulis claims that he wants to be a girl named Luna. And his father, Jeffrey Younger, insists it's actually not the case at all. A March 8th, 2018 video at James Elementary School open house of the divorced parents struggling over who was supposed to have momentary custody was played out before a jury in Texas last month when a jury was tasked with determining who ought to have control over James's custody and medical decisions. And this video is now a larger symbol of how kids such as James have become pawns in the transgender debate. Joining me now to talk about her excellent article entitled The Tragedy of the Trans Child is Madeline Kearns, the National Review Institute William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism. Madeline, so glad to have you on Washington Watch.
2: Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be with you.
1: If people are to believe the accounts of the legacy media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they would conclude that the dad here is the villain because he's refused to grant permission for his ex-wife to administer hormone-blocking drugs to his young son. And you actually note in your article that Rolling Stone says the younger story has now become a, quote, terrifying right-wing talking point, end quote. So it sounds as though these media outlets have fallen under the spell of the trans cult, and this is a behemoth too big for us to battle. But you actually argue that it is left-wing attitudes that are victimizing kids. Tell us why you feel that's the case. Yeah, sure. So the Rolling Stone article that you mentioned focuses on the
2: father. And my sense of reading that article was that they were – whether deliberately or not, completely missing the point. Because even if we suppose that Jeffrey Younger is all the things that they seem to think he is, it really has no bearing on whether or not it's appropriate to treat a little boy as if he were a girl. I don't mean merely let him dress like one. I mean, tell him that he is a little girl. Right. And it really has no bearing on this three-stage a process of quote unquote transition. Of course, all of these things are shrouded in euphemism, but gender affirmation, which is the euphemism for a drastic intervention, which would permanently, uh, when brought to its logical endpoint, would permanently um, interfere and damage the sexual development of a child. And so what this case was really about was there was a messy domestic dispute, as unfortunately, you know, isn't so uncommon nowadays. Parents break up and they're trying to sort out um, who gets custody. But what was really important about this case was that that was happening um, behind the backdrop of a much bigger question about what the legal and medical establishment should do if a parent wants to to forcibly change their child's uh, sex. Now that the left... um, Entirely, uh, try to sort of evade that, that what the case is really about. They try to evade that because it doesn't suit. their agenda and so it's much easier for them to create these straw men villains be it the father in this case or be it the quote-unquote right-wing um you know media right-wing uh politicians and so they like to pin all of this on on people like that and just not actually answer some pretty basic and fundamental questions about well hold on a second here why do you think that that is appropriate treatment for a
1: child at seven years old Right. And, of course, we're not talking about children who have the capability to issue consent for these life-altering procedures and treatments. So we're necessarily faced with coming up with an answer of what you do when you're dealing with a minor child. And you mentioned three clinical approaches, and these are the ones that are suggested for helping children who exhibit symptoms of gender confusion. Can you explain to us those three procedures, those three stages?
2: Sure. So the the first one uh, would be it would would actually be cover a range of therapies, be it talk therapy, family, parent counseling, psychotherapy, and that would be aimed at finding what the root issue is. So if a child says, I think I'm the opposite sex and they're very distressed by this, uh, often that can be related to something else that's going on. Maybe this child has been bullied. Maybe they're recovering from sexual abuse. It could be maybe they have autism and, and are latching on to um, black and white concepts. And it could be any number of things. And so that first form of therapy is designed to sort of get to the root issue here. What's what's the source of this confusion? What's the source of this distress? The second one is something called watchful waiting. And that actually normally involves the, some of the therapies I've just described of the first part. But but the basic premise of watchful waiting is, as it says on the tin, just leave the child just watch what they do, you know, certainly don't pretend that they're the opposite sex, certainly don't give them any drugs or anything like that, but just see how they develop and because many of these children, as we know, 80%, the research comes back very, very clear time and time again, 80% will just grow out of this dysphoria. And then of course there's the third uh, suggestion, which is a very new suggestion and it's it's an ideological one, it's not based on science, it's not based on on eh, evidence is certainly not based on any sort of sensible medical principle and that's this gender affirmation which involves three stages the first is quote-unquote social transition which involves telling a child that they literally are the sex that they think they are and, and having the entire community pretend um that that is the case and then that Quite often, uh, you know, people suspect that that will lead to the second stage. And that is the um, puberty blocking uh, drugs, which would then be followed perhaps by the the more irreversible ones, the, the cross-sex hormones, which are sterilizing. And then the third stage of that process would be removing surgically the child's reproductive organs. So it was obviously <laughs> quite a... A drastic uh thing to do, so you would you would suppose that people doing it would have good reasons to do so
1: I have so many different thoughts on this, and particularly as a mother of a child who is on the higher functioning end of the autism spectrum, a 15-year-old boy, I can say that there is a correlation, having done a little of my own research on this, and you referenced this again in your piece, that there is a connection with underlying neurodevelopmental psychological or psychiatric conditions, and yet these kids are being funneled into a pipeline that has been bought hook, line, and sinker. Thinker by the legacy media, by liberal politicians, they gobble it up and they churn it out as fast as there is another parent willing to exercise these extreme therapies. Why are we seeing so much advocacy on such an extreme approach to what might be an issue of gender confusion? Why go to the absolute outlying extreme?
2: The only real uh, answer I can come up with is that there are are, um, a significant minority of activists uh, in the the clinical world and also in in other uh, spheres of life and media and politics um, who are just committed to this, uh, I think you used the word cult um, earlier, yeah you know as you'll as notice from from my essay, I, I was very restrained and, and just let the facts speak for themselves but but there is a, there's an element of just absolute passionate commitment to to this uh, ideological pseudo religious idea. And those people have just got themselves into positions of such immense power. But the, but the, the real thing that's happening is, is that I actually suspect that the majority of, of people on both sides of the political aisle are not at all convinced by their assertions and their pseudo science or junk science but are very frightened to say so and what we're seeing is a type of cultural and, and sexual revolution and as we know throughout history you want to go right back to Russian revolution, whatever it is. Yes. The way that these things work and the Burkean principle that we uh, on the right would hold fast to is that it really all it needs for it to be able to be successful is for people who know better um, not to do anything about it and what we're we're experiencing is a level of Superstition and cowardice yes. in our main elite, be it the academy, the media and politics. Um, superstition and cowardice, which is allowing people to take orders from from um, people who are either unhinged or evil. And I, I'm happy to say it as forthrightly as that because I've explored the evidence and I've investigated what's going on. And I just cannot account for the path that they are putting children down.
1: Well, you just mentioned the Russian Revolution. I think it was Vladimir Lenin to whom the quote was attributed repeat a lie often enough and it becomes the truth. So we have no alternative other than to speak truth. And I never would have anticipated even a few years ago, that we would be debating the nature of biological reality, what settled science has for decades proven to be the nature of the chromosomal arrangement of men and women. And this is about so much salesmanship, isn't it? This really comes down to taking an idea that has proven profitable for a small segment of the populace, particularly those in medicine. And the NIH's early intervention study funded by our tax dollars is a perfect example of that in partnership with the American Academy of Pediatrics. There is an alliance between advocacy and money. And they are certainly using it to promote an agenda. Madeline Kearns has been my excellent guest. Again, go to TonyPerkins.com, read the article there. Coming up next, Democratic Governor Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania vetoed a bill yesterday which would have outlawed abortions based on a Down syndrome diagnosis. I'll talk with Republican state rep Kate Klunk, the sponsor of the bill that was vetoed.
3: Abortion is one of the most combative and sensitive moral and political questions in America today, even among Christians. There has been a renewed effort in theological liberal Christian circles to argue that the Bible does not oppose abortion. In light of these arguments, it is crucial for Christians to know what the Bible actually says about abortion. Does the Bible teach that life begins at conception or birth? Is abortion murder? In FRC's new publication titled, Biblical Principles for Pro-Life Engagement, personhood scripture and church history author david clausen addresses these questions with relevant passages in the bible that inform how a christian should think about abortion the question of personhood and a survey of how prominent church leaders have interpreted these passages throughout history learn more by visiting frc.org unborn that's frc.org unborn Meadow Pollock was a high school senior who was tragically gunned down during the Parkland school shooting in Florida. In an emotional and gripping FRC Speaker Series event, her father, Andrew Pollock, and education expert Max Eden discussed the tragic massacre and the politically correct policies that allowed the Parkland shooting to happen. The Southern Poverty Law Center and the Obama administration promoted a false narrative that teachers and principals were racist and couldn't be trusted to enforce rules with consequences. Instead, they argued for healing circles and restorative justice. These policies enabled a psychopathic criminal to maintain a clean background and purchase a firearm used to murder 17 people at the high school. The Obama administration forced these leniency policies into hundreds of schools, serving millions of students across America. To listen to this event and to learn more, visit frc.org slash speakers. That's frc.org slash speakers.
0: Religious liberty is one of the most.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday afternoon. Well, Governor Tom Wolf ran as a putatively pro-life Democrat. But if there were any considerations as to where he stood on the abortion issue, he's made very clear now where he stands. Yesterday, Governor Wolf vetoed a bill that would have banned abortions over a diagnosis that an unborn child has Down syndrome. And he did so just a day after it passed the GOP-controlled Pennsylvania legislature. Now, joining me with her reaction is Republican State Representative Katie Klunk, who sponsored the bill initially. Representative Klunk, welcome to Washington Watch.
4: Sarah, thank you so much for having me tonight.
1: Okay, this bill seems like a common-sense bill. In fact, Pennsylvania law allows abortions up to 24 weeks of pregnancy for any reason except to select gender, one would think we could add, an except to select disability or any type of chromosomal abnormality. Tell us about the bill that you introduced and what the bill was designed to do.
4: Sure. Well, Sarah, the bill is actually pretty simple. Um, just like you said, here in Pennsylvania, we do not allow abortions based on the sex of a child. Uh, and... Simply, this bill would add a Down syndrome diagnosis. So it's a pretty simple bill. Um, We also allow for exceptions um, for the health um, of the mother, for rape and incest, um, which are already included in our Abortion Control Act. But we wanted to make it abundantly clear um, that those women who went through those unfortunate circumstances would still be able to get that abortion um, if needed.
1: So, Obviously, you and I both understand that this veto was wrong, but tell us first about what Governor Wolf's response was. Why did he feel this is a bill in need of vetoing? Because, again, to both of us, it seems fairly common sense.
4: Well, in his veto um, message, he talked about the need to um, have a conversation about, um, you know, these individuals with disabilities, ensuring that they have the support that they need and deserve. And I would argue that we can't even really have that conversation if these individuals aren't even born. Right. So um here in Pennsylvania, look, we've, you know, he he always continues to say that we aren't funding these families enough. And I would point to this past year's budget and even the past decade where we have pumped in over a billion dollars to help families um, with down syndrome and other intellectual disabilities you know we've wow. shown a commitment to them of course there's more that we can do um, but really the conversation needs to come back to this horrific practice of um, genetic selection in the womb um, and and just because purely of a down syndrome diagnosis i, I just truly can't understand it sarah
1: No, I can't either. And it's gotten to the point now with Democrats where abortion is not just a an acceptable moral choice, but it is now morally imperative. If we remove common sense restrictions and in one, I have to tell you, this brings to mind Joseph Goebbels and Mengele in the World War II Nazi-era fascism development campaign, the selection of individuals with intellectual disabilities. We have this taking place now in the United States. We have a Democratic governor just north of us who is saying, if a child has Down syndrome, we don't want to remove restrictions. You are free to abort that child based on the fact that they don't meet a certain neurotypical standard. This, to me, is an absolute absence of not only common sense, but morality and an understanding of the worth of every person.
4: It is really sad, Sarah. You know, allowing these babies to be aborted solely because that ha- they have that Down syndrome diagnosis is truly a return to that dark hour in our human history. Um, you know, my generation, we didn't live through that, but I've read it in the history books, and I do not want my daughter um, or even myself or any of, um, you know, my constituents living in a state where we allow abortions strictly based on an individual's down syndrome diagnosis i have met these families Um, these families have been tireless advocates and Mm. these individuals truly show that these lives are worth living um it, it Countless, countless families have come and and thanked me over the past, you know, 24, 48 hours for my advocacy on this. And, look, there's a lot of work to be done. Even though he struck that veto pen, you know, we we still need to stand up for life each and every hour, each and every day to make sure that these children have a voice.
1: You know, it's horrifically reminiscent of where – The issue of slavery and the rights of African Americans came to play during the Civil War by Southern Democrats, whose entire premise rested on the fact that they could not treat someone of a different skin color as having the same equal rights. It is an absolute violation of one of this nation's most foundational principles that all men, all women, Are created equal. And I have to say, again, knowing that this is a veto that took place just north of us brings to mind the most horrific eras in American and International history. To our listeners, go to our TonyPerkins.com site. You'll find there our FRC op ed by Patrina Mosley, who's our Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy, on celebrating the Love Chromosome on World Down Syndrome Day. And Representative Clunk, I know you know this, having met these families, if you've ever met someone with Downs, you will never find a happier Bigger lover of people than an individual with Down syndrome. What an incredibly gifted group of individuals these are. So to say that they don't have value because they are somehow different, where's the logical conclusion in this? So we've said don't discriminate in the womb on the basis of sex, but disability, atypicalness, you can discriminate. How does this possibly end well?
4: Sarah, I don't think it does. I think we're on a slippery slope. Here in the United States, Um, I I really wish that Pennsylvania was on the right side of this. Unfortunately, we have a governor who, um, you know, has received Planned Parenthood funding and uh, Planned Parenthood has pumped in over one point five million dollars into helping him get elected. So uh, I'm not surprised. But look, we need to stay on the right side of history on this. We're going to keep fighting for this and we're going to stand with states like Missouri and uh, North Dakota, where this is is the law of the land.
1: Representative Plump, thank you so much for your excellent leadership in Pennsylvania. You are listening to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Coming up next, Colorado parents are furious that a high school teacher assigned explicit pornographic material without their consent. And I'll talk with Jeremy Dice, attorney with First Liberty, representing a 16-year-old student and her father. Coming up next. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, sitting in for Tony Perkins. A Colorado high school is under fire for assigning sexually explicit material, vulgar language, passages about sex without parental consent. Brett Kaysen, the father of Skylar, a 16 year old student at Steamboat Springs High School, was shocked when his daughter told him about the sexually charged graphic assignments she had in, get this, music literature class. Joining me now with his analysis is Jeremy Dice, attorney with First Liberty, who's representing the family. Jeremy, welcome back to Washington Watch.
5: Always good to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so on the first day of school, Mr. Ayala, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, instructed his students that they would study a particular poem, but failed to warn of the obscene content and this is a poem called howl by alan ginsburg can you tell us a little bit about the poem and the assignment
5: well i'll tell you a little bit and i'll try to make sure that uh the guy with the, his hand over the sensor button doesn't have to use it but <laughs> right. it's going to be going to be tight that the yeah, fcc doesn't
1: shut to- us down yes
5: Right. Yeah. Look, if you if you're not familiar with the poem, how, as I was not, I I would encourage you not to Google it. But let me tell you that in in the 1950s, it was the subject of an obscenity trial. And the court eventually decided that it does not meet the legal definition of obscenity. But that doesn't make it any less uh, offensive. It is a 3000 word poem. So it's a significant book. Uh, in which there are multiple depictions of very violent homosexual and heterosexual acts against a variety of people. There are are all kinds of uh, nasty symbolisms that are throughout the whole thing, and, and and there are dirty words in there that even George Carlin wouldn't be comfortable using. So I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a pretty significant uh, problem. And, and so uh, the, the school district there had interestingly chosen a textbook that actually removed a lot of the bad language, and so it left blanks in the spaces where a bunch of four-letter words were supposed to be put in there, and some of the words that you know I, I think people only in the pornography industry would actually use in right. daily parlance anyway. But this teacher. He said that that was too much, and he told his students, look, I, I don't like the censoring, so I'm going to have you guys fill it up. I'm going to read the poem. I'm going to insert the word, and you guys write those words in the blanks. You fill in the blanks. The yeah. students thought he was joking, and he said, no, I'm not. So he, he went through, and he emphasized every C word and F word and B word and the other C word and another C word uh, as, as he went through. And, and every time uh, our client, Skylar, who's a 16-year-old young lady, she had to form every one of those four-letter words, and worse, uh, letter by letter, some of the words she may not have never heard before and certainly never expected her teacher to say as he went throughout the rest of this poem. And then they spent a significant amount of class time discussing what uh, the symbolism that the author may have had in mind uh, when he used the phrase, uh, which I'll call a, a granite phallus, uh, and they had to spend class time discussing that for, for a significant amount of time. And then the uh, the teacher sent home an assignment of a Spotify list, and on that list was a song by a group I'd never heard of before, thankfully, called Car Seat Headrest, and the title of the song is Teenagers Take Off Your Clothes. Uh, and the whole premise of the song is this guy singing to say, teenagers, take off your clothes, send me your pictures, send me your glow. And at the end of the song, it just repeats that over and over again. And at the end of it, says, "Now I've got your clothes, I've got control." Uh, and oh, so you, you have combined <laughs> here a, a, a bunch of just lewd and inappropriate and scandalous material, but a song that normalizes sexting uh, and, and uses language that you know Harvey Weinstein would have used to gain control and sexual favors from people in Hollywood. I cannot imagine why any school district would have thought that in the need age, this was anywhere close to the line of acceptability. But they, they taught it anyway. And worse, they didn't even give the parents, or let alone the students, a heads up that this was coming.
1: So no opt-out. And he takes the language that has been previously redacted by the school and actually has the students fill it in, go into depth about what to my mind, is pornography, whether or not it meets the legal standard of obscenity. And this poor 16-year-old girl, having read up on this, this piece and about your case at First Liberty, she feels ashamed, she feels guilty, it made her skin crawl. So this is an academic environment in a public school classroom. Parents are not notified. The principal, Meeks, issues an apology, Tell me how you at First Liberty take that apology.
5: Well, you know, look, that, number one, the, the the teacher was forced to admit an apology. The, the, the principal said you got to go give an apology to, the, to these parents, Skyler's parents, for not giving them warning. And that's about all. I mean, he, he used this kind of forced apology, and that's about it. So we sent a letter earlier this week to the superintendent, uh, Brad Meach, there in, in Steamboat Springs. And uh, I can only describe this uh, the current statement, which has words apologize in it, I suppose, <laughs> As sort of backpedaling. Now, they've been overwhelmed by international headlines of their school and not portrayed in the way that they hoped they would be portrayed in international headlines. But, look, I think this is absolutely just for them. And I'll wait to see if that apology comes through on the – we asked for a written response by, I think, the 16th of December. So hopefully they're going to actually do that. And we have asked for a few other things I'll tell you about in a minute, too. But, uh, look, you, you cannot have – students coming home from school feeling ashamed uh, and guilty for having done an assignment. It, it is unconscionable that our students would have their religious conscience provoked by a school teacher. That That is just absolutely wrong. And so there's a lot more to be said, I suppose. But I would encourage folks to go to FirstLiberty.org, read the letter for yourself, and to t- decide whether or not this is something that uh, you need to check on in your school.
1: Jeremy Dice, attorney with First Liberty, who is representing the family. FirstLiberty.org is their website. You can find out more about that case there. Thank you so much for the good work that you do on behalf of religious freedom and families like these. You are listening to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Coming up next, we'll talk about Beckett Law's new Religious Freedom Index that provides us with an understanding of public opinion on different issues of religious freedom. I'll talk with Caleb Lyman, director of research at Beckett Law, about some encouraging good news. Coming up next on Washington Watch.
0: News, we can get it from many sources, but what can you trust these days? Where can you get news that doesn't make you as suspicious as you are informed? If you're looking for something better, for honest coverage of the latest news, one trusted news source I look to is The Washington Times. When preparing for the radio program and selecting guests to join me on the show, I will often read The Washington Times and have their reporters join me here on the program because I trust how they cover the news. Join me and more than 7 million readers who turn to The Washington Times every month to get real, trusted news. For a limited time only, listeners of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins will receive a special annual rate of sixty nine ninety five for the first year. Subscribe to The Washington Times and get this special offer by using my name and visiting WashingtonTimes.com slash Tony Perkins. That's WashingtonTimes.com slash Tony Perkins.
6: abortion laws in New York, Illinois, and Vermont are challenging the sanctity of life. These laws have lifted the few existing restrictions on abortion in the name of family planning and mental health of pregnant mothers. Americans need to take a stand and defend the rights of the unborn. Family Research Council is sending Congress 90,000 baby hats as a reminder that babies should be welcomed with love and warmth, not potential danger. Supporters have already funded over 45,000 hats. We are over halfway there. Join Americans across the nation and donate $9 to send a powerful reminder that young lives need to be cherished. When you take action, we'll send you an End Birthday Abortion Certificate that will remind you to pray for born-alive babies who are facing the danger of being killed outside the womb. Visit EndBirthdayAbortion.com for more information. That's EndBirthdayAbortion.com.
0: Hello, this is Tony Perkins, president of Family Research
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host for today, Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships, filling in for Tony Perkins on the Friday before Thanksgiving. Well, just as the Heritage Foundation's Economic Freedom Index helped us understand the role economic freedom plays in different countries, so too, Beckett Law's new Religious Freedom Index provides us with an understanding of public opinion on different issues of religious freedom and the role of religion in the public square. Joining me now with his analysis is Caleb Lyman, Director of Research at Beckett. Caleb, welcome to Washington Watch.
7: Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me.
1: So I have to tell you that the three segments leading up to this segment could probably send someone into a bit of a funk because it sounds like we're besotted a little bit by a number of policy defeats and that we are pushing against the insurmountable odds of the current political climate. But this report... Is so encouraging. What good news for us who hold religious freedom and our religious beliefs in not only high esteem, but the motivation for everything we do. So give me the top line. Are Americans enjoying religious liberty more than ever or are we to believe public discourse and we are being relegated to the shadows?
7: Yeah, what the study shows yeah, focuses on American people's opinions. And what we saw in this first year really, really is quite encouraging. Uh, on a scale of 0 to 100, where 0 is complete opposition, essentially, to a wide array of religious freedoms, um, and 100 is complete support, the, this first year scored 67, which is a very healthy number um, to, to start at. And sure, we definitely are seeing uh, religious freedom be, uh, face face problems all over the country. I mean, law, we certainly understand that we're finding those sites every day. But the encouraging thing here is that you know, the people of America really are supportive of these freedoms and really are supportive of freedoms, not just in one or two contexts, but a wide array of contexts. Uh, kind of the three areas that we saw stick out to us in the data this year was that there is some signs of consensus in a polarized society, there were surprising areas where um, partisan uh, lines did not determine how people responded. There are plenty of areas where Democrats and Republicans were actually quite united in supporting religious freedom. We also saw a preference for a hands-off government approach that people don't want government getting in the way of religious belief and practice, but they also want government to support when religions, uh, and religious organizations do good. And lastly, that there really is a support for a culture of accommodation that people want to make space for minority faiths and not just for them to believe, but to practice their beliefs in daily life and at work. So there was a lot of good news uh, from this index, and will be really interested to see how that changes over time, which is a big goal of the index as well.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what the methodology was here and what the study specifically mm-hmm. addressed, because there were six dimensions of religious freedom, which to me, as I was reading the study, were an excellent way to demonstrate that there are different aspects of belief, of practice, work versus private life. And Beckett really did a fabulous job of pulling in those different avenues. But tell us what those six dimensional areas were.
7: Right, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, because that is one strength, I think, of the indexes. And the reason why we wanted to do this is that there are so many polls out there that we give great analysis of a single current issue or question. But there wasn't something to gauge what the full breadth of religious freedom opinion was in America. You know, religion and religious freedom touched on so many aspects of people's lives that we wanted to give that full 30,000 foot view. So the six dimensions in the index are religious pluralism, religious sharing, religion and policy, religion in action, religion in society, and church and state. Um, and that order that I listed in just now is kind of also the order of the, the strength that we see in this first year. So we have religious pluralism getting the most support. And the, the items in religious pluralism are questions about simply the right to hold different beliefs, um, the right to pray without persecution, worship without persecution, etc., but also the right to practice those beliefs even when they are contrary to majority accepted practices. Uh, so within each of these there's an element of, of both belief and practice. Uh, and the other areas uh, in religious sharing, we see questions about simply being able to share beliefs in public when village enters the public square. Religion and policy covers a wide array of topics that kind of has the most questions of any of the dimensions. And it, it covers where religion interacts with government, where religion interacts with business, private organizations, and asks about private organizations or businesses' ability to run their beliefs according to create their faith, uh, how religion can influence voting decisions, and, and a lot more. It's, it's really kind of a dense topic there. Religion in action deals with when you bring your your faith into the public square, whether that's work or whether that's a different setting, um, and what the limits are of, of how people feel we should be able to practice our beliefs, um, religion and society deals directly with uh, the level of appreciation and um, acceptance of religion and religious people in society, which is kind of, of course, a, a base for freedom to ever happen, and church and state deals with kind of the establishment clause issues where religion and government should and shouldn't interact. Uh, So we see uh, a a spectrum here of both religious freedom topics and scores, with 80 being the top, or religious pluralism, and 58 with church and state. But I do just want to point out that uh, there wasn't a question that received below a majority of support. Uh, from respondents across these dimensions. Those that was, are that was definitely a positive thing to see.
1: Which is encouraging for us because we realize that At the very least, the lowest score that came out, the church and state score, was 58 percent out of a possible 100, all the way up to 80 percent for religious pluralism. So what struck me as I was reading this was the preference for a hands-off government approach, which you previously mentioned, Mm -hmm. because there are a couple of themes that emerged. And it appears here, based on these results, that Americans are uncomfortable with the idea of government penalizing groups or individuals for living out their religious beliefs. Does that also extend to their religious beliefs in the workplace?
7: Yeah, it did. I, I'm glad you brought that up. And and that I also am glad you mentioned that with a lot of these were talking about both Individuals and organizations. It, it's not just the rights of, of churches to do what they need to do, but it's also the rights of individuals to live in their life, to live their beliefs in their daily lives. And yeah, those those so that level of support definitely extended to the workplace, and we see that kind of in uh, the evidence for support for a culture of accommodation and also the religion in action uh, dimension itself. So for example, uh, 74% of respondents were supportive of the freedom of employees to practice their faith at work. Then this question specifically mentioned by wearing religious clothing or refusing to work on certain days of the week. Mm. And one of the findings I think is most salient, most interesting here, is that there was a question to ask that went kind of a little bit further uh, then some of the other questions and asking about how much of practice are we okay with, you know, and so this mm-hmm. question specifically asks if whether whether you accepted the support, the freedom to practice religion in daily life or at work. And here's the kicker, even if it creates an imposition or inconvenience for others. Oh, um, that's so huge. Just hearing Yeah, even just hearing that question, I think, okay, there's no way that's gonna be above fifty percent, right? But it's sixty three percent of respondents supported that freedom, even when it creates an imposition or inconvenience for others.
1: Well, so that brings to mind, naturally, a lot of the cases that have been in the news that have been more high profile, whether it's the Little Sisters of the Poor, whether it's Masterpiece Cake Shop or Arlene's Flowers. We have heard so much about religious liberty as practiced in the workplace, Mm -hmm. as practiced in public life, as opposed to just privately worshiping on Sunday. These numbers are highly encouraging because what we're hearing in the legacy media is that we are highly divided we are incredibly polarized we distrust one another and we won't go out of our way to make accommodations for one another so you sound just as surprised as i was initially with this funding but boy what encouraging news for those of us who hold fast to our religious tenets and do not believe they ought to just be relegated to sunday mornings
7: certainly i i think there's there's a lot here to really counter that narrative of just Polarization and religious people versus non-religious people, left versus right, etc. Even on, even on the dimension that we were, we mentioned that had the, the lowest overall score in church and state. That I, I was just looking back at some numbers today and found something that I thought was fascinating. And the questions where we ask respondents to agree with one statement or another, um, on a position of religious organizations being able to receive funding from government organizations, see that, first of all, 66%, so two-thirds of respondents, say that religious organizations should be just as eligible to receive government funds as non-religious organizations. Mm. Uh, And so I I dug into those numbers a little bit more, and it was fascinating to me to see on this question, again, that is one of the lower-scoring, but still we see a lot of support, Democrats and Republicans were actually both right at 66%. There's only a one or two point difference. So that's, you know, an area where, uh, yet another surprising area where people are united in support of religious freedom in, in many contexts, in many areas where, where we expect to see division. Another thing that our study looked at a little bit was some of the differences between generations. I know, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the time people expect, especially younger people, to be, less accepting or less on board with religious sure. freedom. And, and one interesting thing that we saw was that uh, when it comes to religion, uh, religious exercise at work, actually two questions we kind of mentioned before, this, uh, the ability to practice your faith at work by wearing religious clothing or asking for days off or when it creates an imposition or inconvenience for others. Millennials and Gen Z were actually indicated the highest level of support, which is completely acceptance support. With more frequency than some of the older generations. So another, another area, you know, where it's, we, we don't get that, those stories of how people really feel uh, by just looking at the, the top headlines of the day that are trying to divide and polarize people on these issues.
1: So talk to me a little bit about the methodology of the study. How many individuals were surveyed? And tell me about whether the questions are going to stay the same in the future, because this will be a new annual index, mm-hmm. or whether or not they'll change time to time.
7: Yeah. So the index surveyed 1,000 American adults. And the questions on the survey this first year, there were you know a couple dozen questions and then In order to create an index, there are some statistical uh, analyses that are performed that are essentially used to see where the patterns are in the way that people are responding. So it's an empirical method. Instead of looking at, oh, this question sounds similar to that question, uh, the statistics reveal kind of where there are similarities, and that's how we got those dimensions. And so 21 questions kind of grouped together uh, across these six dimensions that we discussed and those questions will stay exactly the same each year. And that's done so that we're able to track these trends. And that's another big reason I wanted to do the indexes. There are so many, like I said, good polls out there that give you uh, interesting information on the hot button issues of the day, but that 30,000-foot view is not possible. And it's even harder to see, you know, let alone a 30,000-foot view in this moment in time, but how does that change over time? Our society right now seems to be you know, going through so many big changes, and that seems to be such a constant narrative that we're hearing about. And so how does religious freedom play into that? How does the changes in opinion on religious freedom influence our culture? How does it react to those changes in culture? Uh, the index will allow us to start to get a, a hold on those ideas. Um, because those questions stay the same, we'll be able to see, for example, next year, maybe religious pluralism will go up. Maybe religious pluralism will go down. we'll be able to dive into kind of the demographics and the areas that are pushing that up or pushing it down and how that affects the overall index.
1: So perhaps sort of to provide a 30,000-foot perspective, as much as one survey is able to do just that, we know that we're seeing an uptick in religious liberty violations. So obviously we see minor grievances all the way up to the Supreme Court with the – heavily uh, publicized cases that we talked about previously, the concept of religious liberty, that foundational freedom that is interwoven into the fabric of this nation is still strong and supported by millions of Americans, isn't it?
7: Yeah, it, it certainly is. And I think that's a question, you know, what you mentioned about us, about how we see religious freedom violations happening and how we see the court cases that are that are constantly going um, up and down. And it's really interesting to to ask, okay, how do those court cases affect religious freedom opinion? When when a court when a case arrives in the Supreme Court, does that bring more light, more attention and more support for religious freedom or does it divide people more? And that's something that we haven't been able to kind of get a feel for in the past and we hope that the index starts to not only help fill that gap because I think in some ways it can it can inform us on those issues, but more so than that, even I think we, what we hope happens is that it helps generate conversation that's really meaningful about religious freedom in the way that you just described it, you know the core American cultural value, not as just an issue that is focused on one event of the day or another event of the day but really something that is core to who we are and that, and that merits discussion between people and places that are very different. And, and I think we will see that as we do that, we'll be more united on a lot of these issues than we may expect.
1: Caleb Lyman, director of research at Beckett, has been my guest today on Washington Watch. Go to BeckettLaw.org slash index for more information or TonyParkins.com. This has been Washington Watch. I've been Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins. I'll catch up with you next time on Monday on Washington Watch.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is powered by the Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported.